do honestly think that one of the most profitable things I might do on an occasion like this is to simply announce the name Emmanuel, remind you that it means God with us, and say I'll give you the next hour to start thinking about that. But that's not what we're going to do this evening. We're going to turn back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, again, we'll briefly ask God to help us as we study his word. Father, we pray that these things of which we have read and these things of which we have sung might not simply be a a seasonal distraction to any of us, that we would wonder at the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world, that because of these things we might, moved by your Spirit, make it our great concern to have him as our Lord and Saviour, Jesus the Christ. By your Spirit do it tonight, O God. Work in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Draw us to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're very, very hungry. And there is a delicious smell in the air. You know, the kind of smell you get when you drive past a bakery first thing in the morning. It's very faint, but you follow the scent as far as you can. And as that smell becomes stronger, you meet a man who looks as if he's on the point of death on account of hunger. He is emaciated. He is skeletal. There's nothing of him. He has gone so long without eating. His eyes are bright. His face is sunken and shrunk. And you say to him, do you know where this smell is coming from? Do you know where this bread may be found? And sitting on the bench where you found him, he says, yes, it's literally just around the corner and they're handing it out free of charge. And you walk around the corner and there they are handing out these crisp, warm loaves of bread. But the starving man who told you where to go doesn't move from his bench. You become very sick. And a news report goes out that the medicine you need is being made available from a certain doctor in a certain surgery. And so, because of your illness, you do everything you can to make your way to the place where the medicine is being distributed. You think you're getting closer. Signs have been put up to show you where you should go. And at the last moment, as you think you're, you're nearly at your destination, you see a man lying at the side of the road. He's dying of the same disease that you have. And you stop and you wind down the window and you say to him, Sir, are you also in need? Do you also need this medicine that I am looking for? He says, you mean the medicine that's being distributed in that surgery just over there? 
Yeah, go and speak to Dr. So-and-so and he'll hand it out to anybody who asks. Maybe you've got space in the car and you say, do you not know? No, I'm fine where I am. Thank you very much. You drive on. You get the medicine you need. Your body is restored. And as you drive home again, you see that same man looking like he's taking his last breaths, breaths lying at the side of the road still. You're very, very poor. You have no money of your own. But you've heard of a great benefactor, a doer of good, who is ready to give what is necessary. He is ready to gr give grants of money to anybody who applies to him. And he lives at some distance from you. And so you set out to find the great house of the man who is able to give you what you need. And when you draw near to it, you meet a man in threadbare garments. You know, he's got stereotypically empty pockets. When he pulls them out, the moths start fluttering. And you say to him, I heard that in this region there was good being done to the poor, that money was being handed out to people in need. And he says, yep, that's absolutely true. And if you walk down this road just a couple more miles, you will find the place where that man lives who can give you all that your heart could desire, who can fill your pockets, your wallet, your bank account with all that you might need. And you might say to him, you look like you could join me. And he says, no, no, that's fine. You go on if you want to, but I'll stay where I am. And he turns back to the road and holds out his begging cup to the next person who might turn down that street. Tragic, isn't it? Foolish. Desperate. In each case... You've got somebody who is full of need and knows exactly what is on offer and where it can be found. The hungry man knows where the bread is being handed out. The sick man knows where the medicine can be found. The poor man knows where the generous benefactor lives. But there's no interest and no appetite in any of those cases. You can pass on and you can eat your full of bread. You can pass on and you can get the medicine you need. You can knock on the door and you can receive the wealth that you lack. But somebody who knew everything that there was to know still doesn't get what they need. In some sense, in a far deeper and more tragic sense, that is what happened when our Lord Jesus Christ came into the earth. And tragically, it keeps happening. It happens week by week, let alone year by year. It's happening now. It will happen again in a few days' time. It happens in various ways and in different settings. It's what's taking place recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 and, and following. This contains, amongst the good things that are spoken, one of the saddest scenes in the Bible, certainly one of the saddest scenes connected with the coming of Jesus Christ into the earth. We often talk about the wise men. Tonight I want to talk to you about the foolish men. And there are as many foolish men more in this narrative 
than there are wise. The foolish men are Herod and his advisers, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. The wise men have come to worship the king of the Jews. And they've come a great distance. When we talk about this perhaps taking place 12, 18 months after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, that's more or less how long it might have taken them to prepare for this journey and make it. They've come from the east and they've perhaps made their way around the, the if you're looking at it from this direction, the fertile crescent. They've travelled uh, as safely as they can, but they've had to take care. It's been a long and dangerous journey, and they're now reaching the end of it. And they do what wise men would do if you're looking for a king, which is to go to the capital city and to ask there in the royal household, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now bear in mind that this is the news that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. The king of the Jews has now been born. And whatever it is that these wise men know, and however they've come to know it, they understand that this is a king not simply to be honoured, but a king to be worshipped. And I think that is the language of religious awe and reverence. And it's reflected in their response when they finally find the infant Jesus, this now little boy. Herod's wise men, so-called. Herod's chief priests and scribes of the people should have been delighted. You might say Herod should have been delighted, except that he's a puppet king on a throne that doesn't belong to him, and rather than being delighted, Herod is troubled, and so is everybody else, because when Herod is troubled, you get troubled, because that's the kind of man Herod is. And so Herod is gathering his advisers. He wants to know what's going on. So he inquires of the chief priests and the scribes where the Christ was to be born. And this is what they tell him. In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So let's see what these foolish men knew. These foolish men, these chief priests and scribes, they knew who and what Jesus was. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So when the wise men from the east come and speak to these foolish men in Jerusalem and talk about the king of the Jews, the foolish men in Jerusalem know exactly who they're talking about. This is the prophesied ruler. This is the one who will shepherd my people Israel. They are talking about the Christ of God. 
So they know that the promised saviour of God's people is at hand. They're aware at this point that David's descendant, promised centuries before, successively by different prophets, has now made his entrance into the world. They understand that if this is the case, all the hopes of Israel are in this very moment being realised. This is it. I don't know a parallel to this. I mean, I suppose the closest you could get to it, did you know there's a legend that King Arthur's going to return? There are still people who are waiting for King Arthur to be awoken from his mythic slumber that has now lasted for centuries. And when Arthur rides again and Excalibur is drawn again from his scabbard, then England will rise again from the ashes and assume its proper place in the world order. Now you don't look as excited as some people seem to be at the thought of Arthur rising again from the grave. But there's nothing like this. Hundreds of years waiting for the king of David's line. The ruler who's going to shepherd his people. The royal majesty that is going to be revealed. The one who's going to sit on David's throne. Now... It's clear we have to acknowledge that they have grossly misunderstood this. For Herod, this is just a rival to his own throne. They're thinking only in worldly terms. And they would go on thinking like this, the Jewish people, until uh, after the resurrection of the Lord Christ, when the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of more of them. But this should have galvanised them. This should have stirred their souls. After all, although these men have come from so far away, this is the king of the Jews and their Jews. Everything in them should have been excited because the king has now arrived on the stage of history. They knew who and what this Jesus was. They also knew where it was. You Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Where will God's anointed one be found? That's what Herod wanted to know. And they answered him without confusion and without hesitation. In Bethlehem of Judea. That's exactly where it's going to happen. Now how far away from Jerusalem is Bethlehem of Judea. Bear in mind you've got wise men who've already travelled all the way from the east to Jerusalem, a journey that has taken them months more than weeks. How far away is Bethlehem now? Some of you were here last night when I mentioned this, about five and a half miles. Some of you could walk home tonight as easily as the chief priests and the scribes could have walked from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find the man who'd been born king of the Jews. If you really were hungry, how far would you go for food? I don't just mean snackish. I don't mean that the hunger of a 12-year-old boy who thinks he's going to die if he doesn't get his third meal today. I mean somebody who hasn't eaten for weeks. 10 days, 14 days. How far would you go if you knew there was food? What if you were sick and dying? 
and you knew there was medicine, how far would you walk? How far would you ride? How far would you drive if you had a car available to you in order to get the medicine that would secure your life? If someone was handing out thousands upon thousands of pounds, how readily would you travel? What obstacles would you be willing to overcome in order to fill your hands and your pockets with all the riches of this world? People will do a great deal to get the next mouthful of food when they're genuinely hungry. People who think that there's medicine to heal their diseases will make any manner of sacrifices. People who are poor will devote themselves to getting rich. These men in Jerusalem, the direction and the very location of Messiah was clear to them. The distance was eminently manageable. The destination was rich with promise. They knew who was in Bethlehem and they knew that it was Bethlehem where they would find him. These foolish men in Jerusalem also knew that it was, by which I mean there was no doubt in their minds. There's no guesswork. There's no uncertainty. They have a reliable piece of evidence. Where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. So they say, in effect, God has spoken to us. God has made absolutely clear, no shadow of a doubt, the place in which Messiah is to come into the world. We know where to look if we're to find this king of the Jews. God himself has spoken to us. We have had, as it were, the heavens pulled back and through the prophet, in this case Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2, the Lord has made known his plan and purpose for the salvation of his people. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is divine revelation. God has made his will known. And the divine promise, the heavenly word, is coming to pass now in specific detail. There's precision here. There's definition here. This is real and reliable. The promise will come to fulfilment. When the promise comes to fulfilment, it is going to come to fulfilment in Bethlehem of Judea. Because God has spoken by his prophet Micah that amongst the in, in, in Judea, sorry, in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, which is not least among the rulers of Judah, that is the place out of which shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now bear in mind that these are the men who know their Old Testaments back to front. Their academic or intellectual grasp of their Bibles, as we might call them, would be second to none. These were men, perhaps some of them would have been able to quote to you the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. These are men who could have told you all kinds of interesting things about that book. They knew how many words were in it. They knew what was the middle word in the book. 
They knew what was the middle letter in the middle word. They could tell you how many words made up the different parts of the book. They had lots of understanding about the, the mechanics of God's word. They did know the language of it. If you'd asked them, who was it who spoke about the one, the star that would come out of Judah, this promised scepter who was near but still dis not yet near and still at a distance, they would say, well, that's, that's Balak. And we can tell you where that comes. And he talks about the scepter that does not depart from Judah. Micah's saying the same thing. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, we can tell you what Isaiah heard from God. We can explain to you what Zephaniah and Zechariah have heard. We can explain to you what Jeremiah had revealed to him. We can trace out the promises that God has made concerning his promised saviour from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the end of God's revealed truth. And when we're asked, we don't even need to scratch our heads. Bethlehem. It's over there. Five miles, five and a half miles down the hill from Jerusalem. No doubt. They even came to know when it was. Verse 7. Herod determined from them what time the star appeared. That's what he's counting back from. That gives him the, the rough idea of when this child must have been born. So they know now that Messiah already lives. This prophecy has been fulfilled. This promise has come to pass. Now they haven't heard this from the shepherds. Remember the shepherds who are on the hills around Bethlehem. They're a different part of society from these chief priests and scribes. The news seemingly has not filtered as far as the royal courts of Jerusalem. And in some sense, they're now playing catch-up. Can you imagine? You're telling me that Messiah has already been born for a year? You're telling me that the promised seed of David has come and we didn't know about it? Can you imagine how quickly you would want to make up for lost time? Can you imagine the effort that you would put in now to making sure that you are not behindhand in going to honour him who has been born the king of the Jews? The opportunity is already here. It could even be passing away. Surely this is the moment for a manifest urgency. Jerusalem should be galvanised now again. The whole city should be on tenterhooks. These are the men who ought to be leading the exodus to get to Bethlehem. Only a couple of hours walk away so that they can find the one who's been born the king of the Jews. We're not going to let these Gentiles steal a march on us. I know they've come a long way, but he's our king. He's our Messiah. Salvation is of the Jews. Our king is the one who is coming for his people. How many of the chief priests and the scribes made it to Bethlehem? Not one. Not one. That's heartbreaking. Do you remember what John recorded? He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. 
five miles, maybe six. Centuries of waiting. Somehow they've missed it. God in his mercy has still made it clear. Because wise men from the east have travelled. And they need help. Because however sure they may be, however confident they are, whatever it is they desire, now they're in the land of the king. This is the people who know the detail. And they can ask them and the answer can come back quick, clear, sure, hopeful. The one that you're looking for has been born in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you can even figure out more or less how old this infant king now is. It is terrifying that the men who could with such clarity and certainty direct and instruct others as to where they could find the saviour of sinners and the king of his people had no interest or appetite themselves in going there. Now why do I say that this happens over and over and over again? Why do I say that it happens every year at this time? Why do I say that actually it happens week by week by week? Because you know so much more. I only need to turn one page back. That's what the chief priests and the scribes had. And that's what God has since added to the revelation. They knew that Messiah was coming. You know that Messiah has come. They, didn't they knew where he would come. You know why he has come. What was to them shadow should be to you fullness. What was to them, if you like, the, the pencil outline is to you a 3D model. What to them was, was a map with, with a few details sketching out particular places and, and names and events. <coughs> to you is in glorious technicolour. You know that this king of the Jews is called Jesus. You know that this baby who was born in Bethlehem is going to live a life of perfect obedience to God. That after 30 years or so, he is going to step onto the public stage. That he is going to be baptised by John the Baptist, so identifying himself with the people for whom he has come. That he will travel the length and breadth of this particular country and he will declare the will of his father. He will call sinners to repent that believing in him, they may enter a kingdom that is not of this world, but the kingdom of God himself, begun in the heart of everybody who follows him. You know that the way that this promised lamb, this promised priest, 
mediates between his people and the holy God of heaven is through laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. You know that as a prophet, he has made known himself. And in making himself known, he has shown you the Lord God Almighty. You know that his spirit has come, been poured out. You know with greater clarity that the end of the world is not far off. And that this same Jesus who died rose again from the grave. That he ascended to the right hand of God. That he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that before long he will return again to judge you. And every other person in this world. You don't know only the beginning. You know how the story continues. And you know how the story ends. You know not just of his birth. You know not just the predictions concerning his life, but some of its detail. You know his death. You know his resurrection. You know his reign. You know how the prophecies still point toward his return. If somebody who had never opened a Bible, if somebody who had never heard a sermon, if somebody who'd never sat even through a standard school religious education lesson were to walk into this room this evening, there are many of you here to whom I could say, tell that person about Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you boys and girls, you've been brought up with these wonderful truths of salvation held out to you, pressed upon you. You've been instructed, you've been taught, you've heard countless sermons. You may not have memorized your entire Bible, but there are portions of it that you know well. You could tell someone who Jesus is. You could tell someone what he has done. You could describe many of the details of his life. You could talk to people about the people that the Lord Jesus met, the miracles that he performed, the parables that he told, the teachings that dropped from his lips. You could describe in detail the manner of his death on the cross, his blood shed for the sake of all who trust in him. Some of you would say quite clearly, that whoever believes in this Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you sitting in Jerusalem or are you on your way to Bethlehem? That's heartbreaking. That you can know all these things about the King of the Jews, about the Saviour of sinners, about the light of the world, about the light of life, about the King of kings, about the Lord of lords, about the incarnate Son of God, about the Redeemer of God's elect, about the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You can know so much about him.
and you can have no interest in him and no appetite for him. Now is that wise? Or is that foolish? If our eyes fill with tears that men who had been waiting for Messiah for hundreds of years were the successors of these inherited, uh, the men who'd been waiting for the promises. It's all laid out for them. If we read this story and we think, how could they have come so near and yet remained so far? How, when the hungry men passed by for bread, did the starving men simply sit and wait? How, when the sick men went for the medicine, did the dying men let them pass by? How, when the poor went to find the riches of heaven, did those who had nothing of which to boast simply stand around waiting? How hungry are you? How sick are you? How poor are you? See, this was the blindness of the Jews. Hungry? Us? We were the people who ate the manna from heaven. Sick? Us? There's nothing wrong with us. We're the good guys in this history. Poor? Us? We're the children of Abraham. We're the inheritors of the promise. And so confident were they that they had all they needed, that they were everything that they needed to be, that when Messiah was born, they didn't know. And when they found out, they didn't care. This is a tragedy. The beauty of this story is that these wise men who'd come from the east, when they found out, they went to Bethlehem. God guided them. The hungry men found the bread of life. The sick men found the water of life. The poor men. Poor? Gold, frankincense and more? Myrrh? Yeah, I don't mean that nonsense. I mean the men who knew that heavenly riches were within their grasp. Those were the men who found the infant Jesus somewhere in Bethlehem. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they gave him gifts worthy of a king. There's faith. We have come to find the king of the Jews. What makes you think he will receive you, you Gentiles? I don't know how they would have answered that. We're not entirely sure where they got their information from. I like to think, although I can't press it upon you, that perhaps there was something even from the labours of a man called Daniel that had been passed down through the centuries, that they had somehow in God's kindness picked up and understood. But they have enough wisdom 
to know that if they can find him, he will accept them. They've got enough wisdom to see a baby who could sit on his daddy's lap. An infant who could still fall asleep in his mother's arms. And to see in him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now what do you see tonight? Do you see who he is? Do you see what he is? Do you know where it happened? Do you understand the certainty of what God has said? Can you trace out not just the beginning, but the continuing, and then an ending, and then a new beginning, and then an ongoing kingdom, a kingdom that has no end? Are you hungry enough tonight to come to the bread? Are you sick enough to ask this divine doctor to heal your soul? Are you poor enough in spirit to come to the King of Kings and to ask of him that he would save you from your sins, make you a child of God, bring you into his kingdom, watch over you and keep you to be your ruler? be your shepherd to be your saviour you know all you need to know if you knew nothing when you walked in here this evening you now know all you need to know you're saying that's it in 35 minutes or so you can come I can tell you enough for you to be saved I can tell you that this is the Son of God who's come into the world, the promised seed of David's line to save sinners like me and you from our sins and to fit us for the glory which is to come. You know about him. I plead with you tonight. Do not rest until you know him. You may be very near to him. Do not stop until you have found him. You may be able to tell others where he is. Do not be the one who does not go to find him for yourself. You may see all these things about him. Do not be the one who fails to bow down and worship the Saviour of sinners. Amen.